You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Kevin Kelly, welcome back to Well Made. It's been five years. <laughs> it's a pleasure and I an honor, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It uh, made me think about your blog post, My Life Countdown. I don't know if you remember that one. Yeah. That's a post I think about a lot. And you wrote that <laughs> when you were 55. Last year, you had a great blog post about turning 68. And you were talking about kind of organizing your life in five-year chunks. Is that still something you do? And if so, where are we in the five-year chunk? Are we at the beginning, middle, or end of a, of a five-year chunk? It's a great question. Um, the the uh, general idea to recap is that um, almost any significant project will take five years from the moment you think of it to the moment you abandon it. And I have kind of a project-oriented life. And so at least I can count on one hand how many five-year projects I have left. So I am finishing up a 50-year project. Right. Uh, it actually has been 49 years. So it's 50 years in the making, I didn't start off with this idea that it was even going to be a project, but that's how long it's been. So I disrupted my normal sequence of things to to finish this one, which has been going on in the background for 50 years. And um, I do have another five-year project that I'm working on that I got maybe one year into it. And so um, when this project and to be clear, what this project is called is called Vanishing Asia. It's a photo book of um, the vanishing traditions of Asia. And when that is complete and delivered, I'll return to this the remaining four years of the next project. That 50-year odyssey, that it's like a mega project. It was lots of probably little projects or chunks in that because that book is all about your travels around Asia. So each one of them maybe had its own chunks. What was the longest trip in there? When I was young and had a lot of time, no money, a lot of time, <laughs> which yeah. by the way is the better way to travel rather than having a lot of money and no time. When I had a lot of time when I was younger, I did some trips that were like a year long, set out with a little bit of money and into areas that were very cheap and traveled there without returning home. And and uh, also, I would just mention that this was a, a time period when to make a phone call overseas was a huge deal. I mean, you literally had to book an appointment. It was very, very expensive. So that never happened. Of course, there was no internet. And we had um, basically postcards, which would take months to arrive. So my parents literally had no idea where I was. You know, I was 20, 21, 22, whatever. They didn't even know what country I was in. So setting off for a year was was a much bigger deal then than it is now because set off for a year and you're you're zooming with your friends as if you've never left. Yeah, you <laughs> when I went to Japan a few years ago, I was amazed by how good Google Maps and Google Translate have become and you can pretty much get around. Yeah. And, and communicate quite well with people using those tools. Yes, it is. It's amazing. Like type something in and show them the, the writing in, in kanji and they understand what you're talking about. 
Well, actually, now with Google Translate, is you speak into it and it translates into Japanese and spoken, so it's even easier. Yes, uh, that's a great that's a that's a great tip that I got is to get one of these like Wi-Fi uh, boxes that you can travel around Japan with and just have like good internet on your phone. You don't have to pay the uh, <laughs> that's a cool tool for you. <laughs> you don't have to pay the the data rates from your U.S. carrier. Right. And it's, of course, it's not just Japan that has these tools. It's, it's basically the whole world. Some area, some, excuse me, some countries like China, you'll be in a very remote place in China, maybe almost in wilderness, and they'll have um, mobile coverage. Whereas I'm sitting here almost within sight of downtown San Francisco. If I climb up the hill behind here, I can see San Francisco, and yet I don't have cell phone coverage right where I'm sitting in my office. <laughs> so that's the difference between China and the US. So China, they erect cell towers everywhere. They don't care. They'll disguise them as trees, but you don't have much choice. They're just planted everywhere. Whereas, of course, here we're a little concerned about where these towers go. But in China, nope. Got to have coverage. Now, Vanishing Asia is a Kickstarter campaign that's going on right now for your book, uh, which is a thousand pages, nine thousand uh, photographs. I've been following the this work. It seems like you've you've published some bits of it along the way, um, but people who who mostly know you for books like Out of Control and and the one that we talked about last time, which I think was. Uh, the inevitable, uh, all of all of those books about kind of the future. <laughs> I guess people maybe have overlooked what an incredible photographer you are, and and I, <laughs> I feel like street photography and like people like Henri Cartier Bresson and like Elliot Erwitt are people that I, I've always admired in the in the fine art world, but I feel like just looking and exploring some of the pages that I've seen of, of photography that you've shared. I mean, it's really hard to do that. And you're really, really good at it. Um, <laughs> so I hope that people go and check out the Kickstarter campaign. Thank you. I, I, uh, so so, so um, Brisson is sort of one of my earliest inspirations in photography. Um, I started it in high school in the 60s at a time when to do photography, you had to do the chemistry yourself. You had to develop everything yourself and make the prints. And um, for me, it was a wonderful conjunction of science and art, which is, have always been my interests. And Wired, in some cases, was like that. It was like you know technology, but it was like visual. It was it was arty, and photography captured some of that hybridness that I um, was looking for. And photography was not popular. People didn't have cameras. And if they had a camera, they didn't take very many pictures. My parents had a Kodak Brownie camera, and it would have 24 exposures in it. And they would do one roll of film a year. Right. <laughs> 24 pictures a year for the family. I built a nature museum in my basement as a 10-year-old and had exhibits and stuff. I have no record of that <laughs> because they never took a picture of it. Photography then was rare and people who were really good at like Brisson and or Ansel Adams were um, not really even well known until into the seventies when it suddenly started to become a little bit more popular. And of course now everybody is a photographer. I can't tell you what a sea change that is. Mm. The fact that 
probably anybody listening to this has taken a photo within the last 12 hours. Yeah. When when I was starting out, nobody had taken a picture in the last month. Well, well, Bresson would talk about this concept that he became famous for, which was the decisive moment. And that was right. all about kind of, if you were going to have this film camera, to, being there at the, the right moment at the right time, sometimes waiting for a really long time to capture the exact right moment, whereas now you just press and hold and then you can pick the decisive moment after you've shot it. And, and this is what people do, um, you know, the, the, the automatic shutter stuff, or even taking a f movie and just extracting it. If I was starting out now, that's how I would do it. But yes, the decisive moment was very influential in, in my thinking. And there's 9,000 out of the, I don't know, quarter million pictures that I took over the 50 years in Asia. And even editing those is a kind of decisive moment type of curation where you're looking for the exact moment. But every single one of those pictures, I was standing there. Yeah. I was there in that thing. And most of the work in that photograph was being there and ready and having your eyes open and your camera at the ready and the right exposure. And um, even those technical things in the very beginning were difficult. So, so again, imagine if you had a camera in your phone, but you didn't have a screen and you couldn't see right. what you had taken <laughs> until maybe a year later. It would be really tough. So the advances in photography have just been phenomenal. But I started off trying to document stuff that was starting to disappear even while I was there, and it was very clear. And I think my photography it could be called street photography, but it also could be called kind of like a visual anthropology. Right. It's a sense of kind of recording something in my, for me, the ultimate photograph that I was chasing was a little bit of Bresson's kind of decisive moment. But more importantly, I was trying to capture a scene that could have only been taken right at that place, and that everything in that picture, every detail would reflect that particular place at that time. And in some ways, there's there's parts of it that are, I mean, truly beautiful, fine art photography that is just really incredible moments, like we've been talking about decisive moments. And then others are like pages and pages of um, an inventory of doors and baskets and minarets and street art and faces and, and just kind of just capturing what those places and kind of culture looks like. Yeah. So... That's one of the ways I changed over time. In the beginning, I was trying to sum it up into a single image. And then I realized that you couldn't really. So what this book, the photos in this book are less monumental. Like there's each one is a monumental photograph that could stand alone. There are many of those. But I decided to treat the photographs as notes in music mm. and that the what I was trying to assemble was kind of a melody or a symphony over the pages so you have many many images and together they form chords and they form melodies and 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 the whole the whole book becomes a symphony that requires many many parts and so um in that way this book is unlike any other book I have seen every single page has its own design every single page is literally a different design and there is no other book that I'm aware of that have as many photographs in it that work. And so each one of those has a captions. And, and that that idea of making each one of these as a note, a pretty sound that could stand alone, but together makes this very large 
orchestra, I think, is um, what makes the book different. Was the photography a, an output of the travel, or were you traveling because you wanted to capture these things? I was basically traveling to photograph. I was working. I have traveled in Asia in every capacity, from a solo person to traveling with my brother, with a girlfriend. I've traveled with um, my family, a crew of 16. I've traveled with walking groups of eight. And I've traveled with a, I rented a bus in Japan once for 42 people. We did a tour of my favorite places. And so I have gone in every capacity, but I have always mostly gone to, to hunt photographs. And while I am hunting, I am hard to keep up with because I am <laughs> working. As soon as I get up in the morning, I'm out shooting all day long, come back in the evening, go back out again. I do a lot of walking. It is kind of street photography. And, and by the way, I, I don't have very many superpowers, but one superpower that I have is being able to discern whether something is happening mm. in a town or city and being able to, to immediately. I love that. Do you ever hear about those uh, Pacific Ocean navigators? Sure. Who would navigate across the ocean for thousands of miles, and they would be able to read the currents, and there would be mm. two or three layers of currents, waves happening, crossing, and they could kind of like discern them and which way they were going in this vast, vast emptiness. Well, I, I have the same kind of a similar thing with, with, with the city where I can just tell from the general movement of people like, okay, there's like a slight general bias. People are kind of moving this way and the speed at which they're moving and the energy that they have is, okay, wait, there's something happening in that part of the city. And so I'll start to head there. And as I head there, I'll begin to pick up more clues about where it is. And so I will just be able to like put me in San Francisco and I'll be able to tell that there's a festival happening over here right now and I'll get and I'll be there. And you define Asia in the broadest possible way, from like Turkey all the way to, to, you know, I mean, you mentioned China, Korea, but also all of the, the countries in between. And you find yourself in these very remote places. What do you tell people when you're trying to take one of those portraits, of, the, <laughs> of which there are many? Like, how do you find yourself, yeah, being like natural in that environment? Yeah, it is a little difficult for me. There's a proper way to do it, which is very effective. And this is you know, my advice to anybody wanting to do it is that you become embedded. You find an interesting family or little town, whatever it is, and you park yourself there and you hang out, maybe not even take out your camera for the first day or so. And you just be around. And then people get used to you very, very fast. And you take your camera out and they get used to that. And within two days, they don't even see the camera. You can just photograph all you want. Well, I didn't do that. I was moving too fast. I'm more of the ninja photographer where I don't want to disrupt anything. I don't even want them to, to know generally that I'm photographing. So I can I could take a picture of someone with, before they even knew it. Mm. The great advance to me in digital cameras, there were two great advances, but the almost the more important one was the fact that they were silent. The old clicking of the film shutter was so... It was like a siren announcing that you were taking a picture. And it was very distracting and very hard to overcome. So going back to making portraits, um, some portraits I can take without people kind of being aware of it. 
or the the thing where I've just kind of been around taking pictures, and so they're kind of they don't really care. Others, I actually will, you know, kind of smile at them and say and kind of indicate that I like to take their picture. And I, I try not to take too many of those because they're aware of me, and I much prefer it when I'm invisible. So I generally would try and even when embedded to take pictures when they're kind of not aware of it. And and that's how to get the authentic them. Did you ever do the <laughs> Cartier-Bresson thing of waiting a long time? Do you have, what's the longest that you ever <laughs> waited to take a photo? Uh, maybe an hour. No, I would spend enormous amounts of time, oftentimes standing in a spot, knowing that if I waited, the cart would come, the person would walk, would be walking, the light would change or whatever it is. No, I spent an incredible amount of my life waiting for a photograph to happen. It's like fishing. That's part of the part of the process is that you're going to be waiting. Well, Brisson had this quote, which was, "You have, you just have to live life, and life will give you pictures." <laughs> and I, and that's I, I, how do you get to nine thousand great photos? Um, it, it seems like that's a that's a part of it. Is just kind of being around in the right places at the right time and capturing those moments. And then there's the feeling that you've described as otherness. You described this book as 27 pounds of otherness, um, which I think when you say otherness, you mean this in the way that as I guess your your primary audience being Americans or people in Europe or something like that would consider this other. What do you mean by otherness? Well, the people in Korea would consider the people in other part of Asia other. The people in Saudi or in Oman would consider the people in Siberia other. So it's other. It's other to everyone, <laughs> except it's other you, to everyone. Yeah. But it's Asia. It's Asia, but that's the whole point of Asia is so vast and diverse that otherness is is, is your neighbor link a neighbor country at the, at this point. And so um, that's the thing is is that nobody in Asia has seen this. What I have seen this will be as new and other to anybody mm. who lives in some part of Asia as it would be to anybody who lives in North America. And, and the value of otherness is the fact that it gives that, that, that we have to think differently and think different. And that's the kind of, you know, the Apple ad, which is all the great innovation that we have and have and going forward will come from thinking different. And it becomes really hard to think different when you're connected to everybody in the world 24 seven all the time. So when we're all watching the same movies and listening to the same music and study the same things in school, it's very hard to have a different idea. Yet the world is different, becoming less so. And I'm celebrating those differences and that otherness as a means to help us to think different. And you point out that, I mean, it's in the book title, it's vanishing. There's something about that that automatically, I think, uh, sounds sad, maybe, or nostalgic. But you're also saying that you don't regret that some of this is vanishing, that <laughs> these places are maybe not the most comfortable or practical, and that most of the people who are living there are, if they can, moving into a concrete box with Wi-Fi, as you've called it. So <laughs> I, I'm curious about that kind of, yeah. how, do you, how does that make you feel, I, go, I guess? It's, um, we can cherish something without necessarily having to, um, without having to stop what's coming next. So, so, um, I appreciate and celebrate this beauty 
with a full understanding that it will probably continue to vanish. I'm not trying to prevent it from vanishing. Um, because again, some of the, the, are the, the reasons why some of these design solutions, which they're all design solutions are exists is, are things that we don't necessarily want to continue. Like for instance, a lot of the most beautiful costumery for women is very impractical. It's prohibited. It kind of, you know, it's like the veil for a, yeah, you know, a kaburka veil or something. Okay, there, there there is a certain beauty to the outside, but it's 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 a form of imprisonment. So there's no doubt about that. So, so so okay, yeah. So we that's going to go away. Okay, but there is there is you know I have a couple photographs of uh, someone in, in the burqa and against the mosque, and it's beautiful to the outsider. And so um, things will change and things will vanish. Uh, and I'm not. This is not an effort to stop them from vanishing, to necessarily um, preserve them. It's to say these things, even though they are vanishing, still have lessons for us. There's still there's still solutions that we should know about and consider, and will be part of what we invent in the future. Like bare feet. Okay, when I was first traveling in Asia like in India, especially, you'd see bare feet in the cities. I mean, most people in the city have bare feet. That does not exist anywhere in the world anymore. I mean, nobody, if you have any money at all, you have a pair of flip-flops. And so bare feet are, are going away, and people are using feet as their hands, like in craftsmen and stuff. And because you, they aren't barefoot anymore, they don't have that same amazing you know, agility in holding something with their feet. So the point, though, is that you know, if you've seen the Vibram soles and the kind of the whole renaissance in barefoot shoes, that's an idea that, that can come back into the future is, is, is that... Dexterity with your feet. Yeah. Yes. Or, or yeah, using it as therapy. Well, no, there's just so many things buried in that idea that having pictures of people using their feet for, for working is a way that we can think differently. It's a, Yeah, it's a source of inspiration. It's interesting to think about just the intersection of even within the past 50 years that you've been photographing these places and, and people were kind of at an interesting technological crossroads where it's, you're doc, hopefully you're documenting this in a way that we're at the peak of being able to capture things with our cameras, but we're also at a moment where some of these things are disappearing. So there's an aspect of documenting it while we still have those people around and the technology to be able to document it. Yeah. But I like the idea that there's so much inspiration there that's available to us in the present, that there's this cross-pollination of ideas that people could use today. Right, exactly. And again, I took the motive of uh, the decisive moment because that's all I could afford at the time when I was setting out. I was using film. Each time I clicked the shutter, I was paying a basically equivalent of $5. A lot of pressure. So imagine, imagine if every time you had to use your phone, you had to pay five dollars. That really changed kind of how you would use a camera. But so things were very expensive. But really, the best way to capture the stuff is in video. But it was out of the means. And so if I was, you know, if I was today going out, I would take a phone, a really good phone, and I would film the video. And I think that's why the culture is moving to the moving image on the screen, like YouTube, um, and away from books. Um, but this is kind of, we're at peak book right now. Is that why you're releasing this book right now, what, as opposed to 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years from now? Yeah. Books will never be as cheap as they are right now. 
you can go on Amazon and buy books for pennies just for the shipping. You know, when those books disintegrate, <laughs> they're never going to be as cheap as they are right now. And um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the fact that as we record, there's been this wave of anti-Asian violence. And I'm curious if you think, I, I'm not sure that this book is going to necessarily help a lot with that, but I think that it's interesting to kind of bring the humanity of other cultures like in front of people somehow. I don't know if, you, if you've had thoughts about that, especially, you know, through COVID and a lot of the kind of tension between the U.S. and China. Has, has that been part of your thought process? Yeah, China is a very complicated issue. I spent a lot of time in China, or have in the past until the COVID year. My wife is Chinese. Our kids speak Chinese. Most of my business in the recent years has been in China. And the subject of, of China's future is very, very uncertain, even among the Chinese. I mean, you know, in, in the mainland, they they, they don't have no idea where they're going. They're going 50,000 miles an hour, and they're trying to go faster, but they nobody has any idea where they're going. It's very clear at the same time that there's been a global shift in the stars and that the exceptionalism of the U.S. is going to be dethroned. The U.S. will no longer be the kind of sole superpower. And that psychologically is a huge scar, a huge wound to Americans that we, you know, Trump is just one of the early symptoms, but there's going to be more as. Americans kind of absorb this loss of their kind of empire standing that, you know, England went through um, in a previous era. And so um, I, I think we're at the beginning of that transition. I have no idea what will happen. I mean, it's a complete wild card. Uh, what could happen in China, too? I, I constantly in China was kind of trying to figure out where the Chinese wanted to go, what they wanted to be, what they want the role to be, and, and then they just didn't know. I didn't, th I didn't feel there, there was a consensus in China. So it's a wild card. It could go in many different ways. There's lots of scenarios. But what's certain is that the relationship between the U.S. and China is in process and it's going to change and it's going to hurt no matter what happens. And so, um, so, uh, so there will be conflict whether that's the source of some of the anti-Asian stuff happening, it could be a part. But I think what's happened mostly is that it's much more visible. I think a lot of the prejudice was there, but not seen. We're seeing it a little bit more. And, you know, j just the general racial dynamics. I think when you insert a very, if, if, the, if Asians become more assertive, that kind of disrupts the kind of, uh, ecology, if we had black versus white, now you have Asians. It's like, okay, this is a triangle now. This is no longer black and white. This is, there's a third thing, and that's also disruptive. So I think this is not going to go away, maybe is what I'm saying. I, I think it's going to be around a while. I don't know what form it's going to be in. It's interesting to hear you talk about the, the things that you don't know, because most of the time people are asking you, what do you know about the future? Yeah. And we've been getting more and more intertwined as a, as a world by connecting ourselves through right. globalism and the internet and all of these different things. And so right now, I don't know if you have a sense of whether that's going to keep going or if it's starting to fray, or maybe this is one thing that we just don't know. Yeah, no, I would say... I don't know what the individual relationships are, but I'm willing to bet 
any amount of money, <clears throat> that globalism will continue, mm. that we will become more global. I, I just don't see any scenario where we can undo that or want to undo that. And by we, I mean humans. I don't mean Americans. I don't mean, I just mean generally humans. The billions of us on the planet are all reaching for the same thing, wanting this, having some evidence that this is what they want and it's good and going to move in that direction. And, and that is a, and that's a global thing. And that, and what they're moving towards is globalism. Right. Or it's globalism makes it possible. And so, um, I don't see any retreat from that. I'm sure there'll be some hiccups, but you know the reality is is it may you know the the U.S. may have to be uh, dethroned and some, and if that's the price for globalism, <laughs> that's going to be the price. Well, I think a lot about this because I think about my my day job is thinking about manufacturing and supply chains, and mm-hmm. we see um, things like you know a couple of weeks ago the Suez Canal was blocked for a few yeah, days, right, and it became right. like the center of attention for even people who never think about supply chain or shipping. But it pointed to something that was maybe an obvious flaw or weakness in the system, which is that. 10% of trade is going through this one tiny <laughs> bottleneck of a canal. And maybe that's just one of those things that you're thinking about is like one of those hiccups. So like, we're going to have to solve that, but that's not an impediment to like the, to globalism, I suppose. Yeah, I would say that's just a hiccup. That's, you know, building canals is something we know how to do. And when we, we collectively humans see that there's a, you know, a weakness, a bottleneck. Okay. Well, that's, that's a tractable. That's what they call tractable, tractable problems. I think there are some problems that we don't even have an idea for. And, and one would be like, okay, well, what happens when you have everybody connected to each other all the time? How do you, how do you opt out? Uh, we don't have a good answer for that. That's a kind of an intractable problem. You know, if you have a world government, what happens if you object? You know, right now you can kind of move, but you can't move from a world government. So there are some issues of globalism that are very hard to imagine. And how do you have a representative democracy with 8 billion people? And what, what does that even look like? How, well, you know, if you voted, when does that even mean? And how, how does that happen? So, I mean, how do you have representation in that process? We don't know how that is done. I think that's a tractable problem, but I think it is a huge conceptual thing that we haven't really begun to try and address. But in the coming years, I believe we will. When we were at the sort of um, height of coronavirus panic last year, I was (laughs) having this grim thought of what is the worst thing that could happen right now. And something that came to mind was, have you ever heard of the Carrington event? Do you know what that is? It's a solar flare that like took down a lot of... uh, you know, electrical systems in the mid 1800s. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's been a long time since we've had something right, like right, that. Right. And since then, we've invested so much in, you know, wiring up the world. Uh, if something like that were to happen, that seems like it would be really catastrophic, especially in this world where we are all connected. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree that, that that kind of EMP, what's it called, EMF, that kind of a solar flare that's, that, that disrupts the communication would be tragic as well as just sort of, well, in the Long Now Foundation, which I'm a part of, we talk about these kind of um, 
inevitably long-term events. They're they're inevitable over the long term. They're like you know the the century level flood, the next pandemic. These are all inevitable over the long term. We just don't know when they're going to happen. But we we make no plans for them at all. And this example of the solar flare is just another one of those. It will you know we know from the past that these are on cycles, kind of like you know volcanic eruption. It will happen. We don't know when, but we're not doing much asteroid strikes is another one but there is a group right now the a16 or the b16 group which is trying to track the asteroids and be prepared to deflect them if we need to that is one example of that kind of thing that that as a civilization we should be doing more of preparing for the next pandemic and what we would do and how we would respond seeing what the harm this one caused that requires global coordination. That requires globalism to deal with. So henceforth, most of our problems are global in nature, which will require solutions that are global in nature. It seems like humans in general have a really hard time dealing with hypotheticals, like things that might happen and in investing in something. Like if you if you avert something like COVID it didn't happen, right? So then you don't have that, like, the pain and, and learning from the pain. And it seems that we always underinvest in prevention. I don't know if you think that that's something that we can somehow solve. It seems like to, to be able to invest in, in prevention, we would have to be better at predicting the downsides. Yeah, well, the, the major challenge is that this is a function of government. Right. Corporations cannot afford to take a 10-year horizon because it's too inefficient. They're going to be stockpiling N95 masks for 20 years. No, they can't do that. They can't afford that. This is what government's for. Governments are to do all these inefficient things that we want done because this is a kind of inefficiency. To prepare for the inevitable you know, disaster requires you to do things that are, don't make sense right now, so they're inefficient. They're not optimizing for the the cost benefit of the present. Right now, the only institutions that we have that are capable of that are governments. And governments, of course, vary in their capability and are inherently inefficient themselves. And so this is a kind of the paradox. The paradox is that, you know, we have all these inefficient things that we want done and we have to have an inefficient mechanism to do them, and that's the government. And so um, people rail against the government for being inefficient, but that's in some ways part of its job. In America, and probably in the rest of the world too, there, there's a kind of a bias against the inefficiencies of government. But I think we are beginning to wake up to the fact that we need those processes that in the long term, it's a savings if we take the long-term view and that's the hard thing to do is to say well the benefits that we have right now may not be paid out while we're alive they may only may they may go to the next generation and that's called being good ancestor and i would like us to be better ancestors when you think about climate change do you have optimism there do you think uh, because that's another one where it's happening on a much slower time frame than something like COVID, but it's happening pretty darn fast. And we are, seem to be like an, a freight train towards that. How do you think about, is there something optimistic there? I think there are some optimistic things, yes. I don't think climate change is going to be cured by personal virtue. I think it will require large-scale geoengineering, 
large scale institutional changes, new innovations, investment, both governments and corporations, you know, like solar energy. I think we need more nuclear. Hopefully we could have some fusion at some point. Yeah, I mean, things like electric cars, which can have an effect. They're not miraculous panaceas, but they will have some effect. And the thing about electric cars is that you don't need any kind of persuasion, you know, do goodness. It's just that they're superior cars. We have an electric car and it's not a Tesla and it's just incredibly the best car that we've ever owned. It's a little tiny Chevy Bolt and it's like, man, it's just miles above anything we've ever present, bought from Toyota. And so that's where the world's going because these are better, superior technology. And so I am optimistic because we can continue to do things like that. Solar becoming cheaper and cheaper to the point where it just makes sense that everybody has it on their roof. Solar tiles, Tesla stuff. That's where we're going and that's that will help. Yeah. It's just one of those things where I wonder about the Long Now Foundation, which I'm also uh, <laughs> not as closely involved, but I, I donate to it every year. And I think about, it doesn't seem like it's enough part of the conversation, this idea of being a good ancestor and how do we participate in that right now? Mm-hmm. Yes, it, 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 you're right. That's our mission. What we would like to do is to make it much more common instead of rare. And I I, I think... It's education in part. You know, when I was growing up, there was no such thing as being an environmentalist or um, being green or anything. And yet, you know, every single first grader or whatever is the most strident environmentalist there is in the world. I mean, right? And it's because of education, because when you teach kids about the environment and they understand it. And so I would like to see, you know, long-term thinking being introduced into education. Mm. Yeah, that people begin to think about doing things that might not pay off until long afterwards, like planting a tree. Just coming to understand that what do you have to do to be a good ancestor and thinking, just getting that perspective, which we've been able to do with the environmental perspective. Children understand it. They, they, they become environmentalists when they see that everything's connected. My co-founder, Jesse um, Janae, has been on your podcast, Cool Tools, a couple times. Um, your your co-host, Mark Fraunfelder, has been a huge supporter of the work that we've been doing for like the past 12 years or so now. So it's really cool. And I hope people get a chance to listen to Cool Tools. I'm in the beginning, I think, of a new five-year chunk of my life where we've been um, making some tools to help people find factories and essentially connecting the machines that make things to the internet, uh, which is not really the case right now. Um, And so all of the different kind of things that you've done over your career of uh, cataloging things in the whole earth catalog, cataloging tools through cool tools. Now with this Mm -hmm. book, Vanishing Asia, cataloging, you know, the culture it's just been such a huge inspiration to me, and it's always really fun to talk to you. So I wanted to thank you for the inspiration. Well, I appreciate your interest in in in, in even Vanishing Asia. And of course, there's a manufacturing component to that. I've been trying to work with the machines that make lots and lots of books at this scale, which there are not that many. The limiting factor is 
is the binding of these things. They can print big sheets, but when you have to bind them into these huge books, there's not that many that can work with that scale. But like most of our machines, um, the, the new machines are getting amazingly better. The quality of printing these days is astounding, even compared to when my first book was printed uh, 20 years ago. And I had one copy made on a digital print that's just phenomenal. Digital meaning like a laser laser printer. So yeah, I, I applaud your efforts to um, make these machines called factories accessible to everybody. I think it's a, a fantastic step forward. And um, thank you for having me on a chance to talk about my passion of Asia and my photography. And the book is, uh, there's an ongoing Kickstarter right now. So I hope people can jump over and see what it's about. Yeah, we'll put all the links. It's it's beautiful stuff. And uh, so Vanishing Asia and check out the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope to have you again before five years from now. <laughs> okay. And good luck on your own projects. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review. It could be just a sentence long by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.